Brothers and sisters, I greet you all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's a privilege for me to be here at this conference and to be able to speak to you concerning God's Word. As we approach the subject of the doctrine of sin in light of the holiness of God, we will read uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning from verse 1 to verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, saying, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the left the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. We thank you, Sovereign Lord, for an opportunity to gather in your presence to reflect on the theme of holiness, indeed, as you are a great and holy God, and as we behold your holiness in light of what the scriptures say, today we are forced to look at the subject of the doctrine of sin, for only as we understand our sinfulness can we indeed appreciate and understand your holiness. How we pray that as we walk through your word and seek to understand it, you will not only show us the depth and the danger of our sinfulness, but more, more, all the more, we will behold your glory, that we will bask in your holiness. We will be reminded of what Christ has done for us, on whose account we who were captives of sin have now become the liberated children of God. Open our hearts to understand. Open our eyes to see the truth of the scriptures that we may be reminded that he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Would you bless us together as we get into your word? All for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I cannot think of a better theme of a conference than the theme of holiness. As you well know, our God is indeed a holy God. I am so excited at what the different speakers will be uh, talking about concerning the holiness of God. But on my part, I would like to address you on, let's say, the opposite of holiness, on the other side of the coin, the doctrine of sin. If holiness is what it means to be the perfection of God, then you may imagine sin as the imperfection of something. If holiness is the light and the brightness of God, then you might want to think about sin as the darkness uh, of, of things. Why is it important for us to know about sin or to study the doctrine of sin? It is very important that we understand what sin is or what sin is about 
for a number of reasons, especially because an appreciation of the gospel can only come with a proper understanding of sin. If you go wrong on what sin is, you are likely to go wrong on how to solve it or how to resolve the problem of sin. Like we say in medical terms, a proper prescription must follow a proper diagnosis. If you have a wrong diagnosis of what someone's sickness is, you cannot prescribe the right drugs. You may also notice some of you who are familiar with false religious groups or what we call cults, that at the heart of cultic teaching is always the lack of the appreciation of the gospel of salvation. And the appreciation of the gospel only becomes obvious when there is a proper understanding of what sin is about. A wrong view of sin eventually results into a wrong understanding or a lack of appreciation of the gospel of salvation. In other words, when we understand what sin is, then we are able to appreciate the good news of the gospel better because now we have a background of what sin is, which is really bad news. Someone has said that there is a kind of proportionality between our understanding of sin, its seriousness, its gravity, its consequence, and how great God's mercy is. You sense that at the end of Romans chapter 5, where Paul talks very much about sin and its consequences to the human race, that he concludes saying that where sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more. In other words, even a proper understanding and appreciation of God's grace can only come when there is an understanding of what sin really is. Modern Christianity today downplays the subject of sin, sometimes even will deny it, and therefore negates the need for the gospel. There are a number of cultic groups, for instance, around us today, in Africa today, that will downplay the doctrine of sin. Either they will explain it as just a mere weakness or a mistake, or they will explain it as something that is not transferable, something that one can choose to do or choose not to do. And how you define sin, like we say, ultimately tells you how the gospel will be understood and whether it will be appreciated or not. John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion has said that only when we see our truly miserable condition can we approach the Lord with genuine humility and faith. When we understand our miserable condition, when we understand that we fall short of God's standard, that's when we are able to appreciate the mercy and the grace that God has lavished on the human race through Jesus Christ. So in simple terms, when we think about sin, what are we really talking about? What is the proper definition of sin that can help us not only understand what it is in its nature, but why the gospel must address it at its core? A number of theologians and biblical commentators have given some definitions that we could work with. Like A.H. Uh, uh, Strong has said that sin is lack of conformity to the moral law of God, either in act, disposition, or state. Uh, Charles Hogg, one of the New Testament commentators, has said that sin is a transgression of or want of conformity to the divine law. 
And another one, James Oliver Boswell Jr. has defined sin saying that sin may be defined ultimately as anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator. And of course, when we come to the Bible, the Apostle Paul described the sin in a number of ways, and more particularly in Romans chapter 5, where he gives an extensive analysis of the origin of sin and the effects that have come upon the human race as a result. The Apostle Paul understands sin to be unrighteousness or transgression or missing the mark or impurity or uncleanliness or disobedience or ungodliness or lawlessness and he uses several Greek words to describe sin in terms of its nature but also sin in terms of principle and actions. When we think about the subject of sin, we must wonder how do we come to know what sin is and how do we come to know that it is something that really needs to be addressed by scripture. Of course, if you want to know the truth, you must always go back to the Bible. The revelation that God has given us in Christ Jesus, the revelation that God has put down for us that we may know his word, we may know his holy will, and we may be able to walk in that very perfect will. And when we go into the scriptures, a quick passage that we could look at as a, a helpful foundation for understanding what sin is, is to go to Genesis chapter 3, where it all begins from. Perfect Eden, where Adam and Eve have been pressed by God. He has given them everything they would ever need for all of life. In Eden, we see not only God's provision of wonderful things, but also what we would call God's prohibitions, what to do and what not to do. And among the prohibitions was that while man was given the license or the guarantee to enjoy everything within the garden, he was not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is a willful, voluntary disobedience of Adam and Eve. That against what they know to be God's will, they choose another way that is against God's will and thereby in disobedience, they sin against God. In Genesis 3, we see a progression of the temptation that eventually leads to their sin. One, we see a distortion of God's word. The serpent comes to Eve and begins to create doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say, Eve, are you sure God actually said that, if you, that, that you should not eat of any of the trees in the garden? He creates doubt in Eve's mind. He distorts God's word by questioning it and rephrasing it. And then he denies the very same word. When Eve tells him of what God told him about what to eat and what not to eat, what does the serpent say? You will surely not die. You can't be serious. You mean you also believed that simply because God jokingly said it? God was not really meaning what he said. So they deny what God has said. They have distorted his word. They have denied his word. And now they doubt his goodness. The serpent tells Eve, the reason God didn't want you to eat of that fruit of the tree is because he knows that if you eat of it, what is the serpent saying? 
that God is actually not as good as you think he is. While he has given you all these wonderful things to enjoy, there is something he's hiding from you. So they doubt God's goodness. And eventually, they desire God's glory. How? The serpent tells them, let me tell you a secret. If you actually eat of this tree, or of this fruit of this tree, you will become like God. You no longer have to be under God. You no longer have to be like a creature. All you need is to eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, and you will be like God. So there it is. A distortion of God's word, a denial of God's word and will, doubting God's goodness, and desiring God's glory. And before we knew it, the first sin had come into the world. Adam, against the knowledge that he had of God's express commands, had not only resisted God's word and will, but had deliberately walked away from God's known will. And from then, not only do we have the first sin into the world or coming into the human race, but the consequences that come out of it. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read about the curses that God pronounces, not just about Adam and Eve, but about the land, and about the, 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 the so many ills and the, so many misfortunes that would begin to characterize the world because of that sin. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 5, you find the Apostle Paul referring back to that experience in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. But now he takes it even much further. He says that what did happen to Adam became not just a problem for Adam, but a problem for the whole human race. That Adam, as the first man, as a federal representative of the human race, has since passed on the corruption, the polluted nature that he inherited as a result of that sin and the curse that came because of that sin. And from Genesis chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives, rather from Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives us a theological perspective of the doctrine of sin. A number of things that he says, number one, he reminds us that because of Adam's sin and disobedience against God, sin and its consequences, which include death, have been transmitted to all men throughout all ages. And on account of Adam's sin, all humanity is now steeped in disobedience against God. And we can read that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We can read that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. And that this sin has not just been transmitted to humanity, but it has been transmitted in a form of a corrupted nature. And from this nature comes all sorts of sinful acts and behaviors. So from Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 5, we identify sin as a corrupted, perverted, polluted, sinful nature. But from that very nature, we also identify what the Apostle Paul would call the works of the flesh in Galatians. The acts, the behaviors that proceed from the nature that is now at work in sinful man. And since Paul has wisely captured the nature of sin by saying that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. The reason we are sinners is not because of the sinful acts we do. It's not because we steal or lie or cheat or kill people. But on the contrary, the reason we do all those acts is because by nature, mankind is born in bondage to sin. 
Theologians have come up with this word that is usually used to describe the nature, the extent, and the intent of sin, a word that is commonly known as total depravity. Now, there is some disagreement about the usage of this word. This word. Some people have chosen to use uh, radical depravity instead of total, especially because the word total can really be confusing. So when we talk about man being totally depraved, what are we really talking about? Well, we can look at it in two ways. We look at it quantitatively and also qualitatively. And quantitatively, when we use total depravity, we are saying that every part of who we are has been affected by sin. There is not a portion, there is not a part of our lives that is clear, that is clean, that is innocent. Our minds, our thoughts, our wills, our emotions, our bodies are all polluted or touched by that sin nature to the extent that everything that comes out of us, that wells out of us, is corrupted by sin, is affected by sin, and is bound to have negative consequences on us and the world in which we live. But we should also understand this qualitatively. That when we talk about total depravity, we are not saying that man is incapable of doing anything good. We are not saying that man is as bad or is as sinful as he could ever be. On the contrary, we see that man, because of God's image in him, is still capable of doing something good. For instance, man, even though he's a sinner, is going to love his children is likely to want to help the poor and the needy and the widows. You can see that there is some residue of good in man in spite of his sinfulness. But what this means is that man is incapable of doing anything good that can result in his salvation. So, quantitatively, every part of who we are has been affected by sin. Qualitatively, man is not as sinful as he could be. It could actually be even much worse than that, if not for the grace of God. And in summary, we are saying that this inherently sinful nature results in a complete alienation from God and a total inability of human beings to achieve reconciliation with God based on their own abilities. In other words, because of the sin nature at work in us, inherited from sinful Adam, man is incapable of saving himself. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 9, paragraph 3, summarizes this condition of man in this way. That man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. That because of the state of sin in which man is born and lives all his life, no matter how good he thinks he is, no matter what wonderful good works he attempts to do, all those good works are incapable of saving man or even drawing him closer to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes the deplorable condition of sinful man as not just one of weakness and mistakes, 
but one of death. He says that for you were dead in your trespasses, unable to help yourself. But God, who is rich in mercy, the turning point comes on that phrase, but God. Apart from God, you were dead in your trespasses, unable to help yourselves. In other words, man in and of himself, left to himself, is bound to do evil because his will is tainted by sin and everything he thinks about, everything he wills, everything he desires to do is corrupted by that nature. When we do not understand the extent and the intent of sin in a man's life, we are bound to downplay the gospel. We are bound to fail to understand why the gospel becomes good news. But when we understand the heinousness of sin, the, the danger of sin and the consequences that come after it or out of it, then we are ready to see why the gospel in the scriptures is announced as good news because it comes against the background of the bad news of sin. Sin has not only come to us as uh, from Adam in terms of nature, but like I said earlier, this very nature is, is evidenced or demonstrated through sinful acts that man does. Sin is not just a nature that we have to live with, but it is universal. A number of Bible passages will remind us not that just we are sinners, but that sin has so much corrupted and overwhelmed us that apart from the grace and the mercy of God, no one could ever stand, no one could ever have hope of eternal life. Listen to a number of scriptures and what they say about the, the understanding of sin. First Kings chapter 8 verses 46 says that for there is no man that sins not. Meaning, no matter who you are or where you are, you are a sinner and that sinful nature will lead you into sin. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Who can say? And indeed, that rhetorical question just reminds us that the answer is nobody. Nobody can say that they are clean, that they are okay. Then you come to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart of a man is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart of a man, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Meaning that sin has not just corrupted who we are and how we think, but it has corrupted the core of our being that everything that proceeds from us is corrupted, is sinful, and can only bring sinful consequences. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 says that for there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. Isaiah 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. All, the key word being all, not some of us, not a few of us, not maybe, not most likely, but all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Isaiah 64 verse 6, the prophet reminds us, he says that, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness as a filthy rag, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That even our best righteousness, even the best of our deeds are like filthy rags. 
Now, if our best righteousness is like filthy rugs, what does our unrighteousness look like? You can imagine. Romans 3.23, one of the major gospel passages that we like to run to. The Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the all means both Jews and Gentiles. The all means regardless of gender or background or career or profession. It doesn't matter who you are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 22 says that, But the scripture has concluded all are under sin. Again, the key word being all are under sin. First John chapter 1 verse 8 says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse 10 of the same first John chapter 1 says that if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now to sum this up, the message of all these Bible passages, um, they, 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 there is a summary report in the Canons of Dots in Article chapter 3, where it says that therefore all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, and fit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature. Please mark those key words. Their distorted nature. Slaves to sin, inclined to evil, incapable of doing, not just of doing good, but of doing any saving good. That no matter what man does, no matter his excuses, no matter his qualifications, is bound to be corrupted and polluted by sin. Even when the intentions are good, soon or later it results into sin because it proceeds from a sinful nation. Now we can understand why people like David in Psalm 51 would not only confess his sin to the Lord, but he confesses saying that even from my mother's womb, I was a sinner. I was sinful at birth. Is David saying that he was sinful while he was in his mother's womb? No. What he's saying is that even in my mother's womb, I had the sin nature in me, at work in me. And the reason I have sinned or I have performed sinful acts is because of the sin that is always at work in me. We meet the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 crying out after he has beheld the awesome glory of God in a vision. And what is his immediate conclusion or confession? Woe unto me. A man of unclean lips. Not just a man of unclean lips, but a man who lives among a people of unclean lips. What is Isaiah saying? That my problem is not just I have unclean lips, but that's who I am. That's where I live. That's my context. That's my culture. Everything around me is unclean. And I deserve to die. I deserve to be punished. Woe unto me. Now, I know some of you might be here listening and you are wondering, why do you have to spend all this time giving us the bad news? 
Why do you have to tell us about the sin that we've been running away from all our days? Can't you just tell us something nice? We sure would like to hear about the God of love, the, the God of grace, the God of uh, patience or mercy. And indeed, there is lots of scriptural passages and evidence that show God to be all those things. But like we said at the beginning, God's grace cannot really be appreciated or understood well without the background of who we are. For us to appreciate the intensity of light, we must understand the depth and the fear that comes with darkness. That the good news of the gospel does not really become good news until we understand, number one, that we are sinners, Number two, that we are incapable of saving ourselves or delivering ourselves from that sin nature out of which proceeds all the different sinful acts. And that we cannot understand the intensity of, of, of the sacrifice of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, unless we understand the heinousness of our sin. When we understand the heinousness of our sin and the consequences that must come out of that sin, and how a holy God must severely punish that sin, then we recognize why God's grace is important, why God's grace is necessary, why God's grace is something that every one of us must desperately hunger for, must desperately pant after, because apart from that grace, none of us will be saved, none of us can save ourselves. We live in a world today of alternative uh, spiritualities, where so many religious groups continue to mushroom across the continent of Africa. And one of the things you may notice that create an appeal for followership in these groups is that often they will deny the teaching about sin or they will downplay the nature or the seriousness of this sin. For instance, if I can quickly think of some cultic groups that do this, think about the Seventh-day Adventist movement that at the heart of the theology of Seventh-day Adventism is a distortion of the biblical understanding of sin. The Seventh-day Adventist, for instance, will tell you that sin, is, uh, we, that, that sin is something that is not as serious as the Bible would like to call it. If I can quickly summarize for you uh, Seventh-day understanding of what the gospel is really about, listen to what they say that there is something that was called the great controversy in their theology. And I want to share with you the summary of how they understand that controversy. That the great controversy predates the fall of man and begins with Satan in heaven. And according to this doctrine, Satan challenged God's right to govern the universe because God was unfair and had made a law, that is the Ten Commandments, that could not be kept. As a result, God must vindicate himself from these charges in front of the whole universe. This need for God's vindication is why Christ had to come as a fallen human and to keep the law of God. He had to prove that Satan was false. Jesus' success in obeying the law, however, would not be enough. A group of people must also demonstrate that God's law can be perfectly kept by following the example of Jesus. Thus, the reason that Jesus has not returned yet is that the church has failed to produce such a group. In other words, what Seventh-day Adventism would like you to believe 
is that really our existence here on earth or, or all the struggles we go through as human beings is not because we are sinners. It is because we are here to prove that we can keep the law of God perfectly, which Satan claims that was unfair because nobody would keep it. So according to Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, Jesus really came to demonstrate that he could keep the perfect law of God well and therefore serve as an example of somebody that we are supposed to follow in our pursuit of salvation. As Seventh-day Adventists will insist that they believe in forgiveness of sin and that this forgiveness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But did you know that there is something more they add, which in most cases they will not tell you? Quoting Ellen G. White, one of the prophetesses, rather the founders and the prophetess of the group, she says that it was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts, that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. In other words, that man can only be saved through the law, and man is capable of keeping the law of God unto perfection. In another quote, she says that God's requirement under grace is just the same he made, that he made in Eden, perfect obedience to his law. So according to Seventh-day Adventism, man can actually perfectly keep the law of God. And through his keeping of the law, man can actually find salvation for himself. But if you think for a moment, is that really the evidence of, of Scripture? Is that the testimony of God's word, that man is capable of keeping God's law perfectly and in the process saving himself? No! What we read almost on every page of the Bible is that man is a sinner. Man has sinned. Man has fallen short. There is nothing in him that is inclined to doing any saving good. And a man left to himself apart from the grace and the work of God in his life actually is on a downward spiral into eternal destruction and damnation. He's not capable of saving himself. When somebody thinks that one can just obey the law of God and therefore become acceptable before God, what they are saying is that they have not understood the teaching of what sin really is. Is that they have displayed, the, the rather downplayed the doctrine of sin and there is nothing more dangerous like that. There is another group that again also distorts the doctrine of sin and therefore underestimates and underappreciates the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints listen to their theology of what salvation really looks like. They say that before we were physically born in this world, we were born as spirit children to Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother in our primordial existence. While in this spirit world, God called a council all of us, as spirit children of God, not yet sent to earth, were present. Heavenly Father announced that we would be coming to earth to be born in human bodies, to be tested, to see if we would be worthy to return to Him. This point is very crucial, remember, because according to Mormonism, the reason for your mortal lifetime on earth is to prove yourself worthy by keeping God's commandments. In one of their doctrinal books, in 2nd Nephi, chapter 25, verse 23, which is found in the Book of Mormon, by the way, that they call another testament of Jesus Christ, they say that for we know that it is by grace that we are saved, 
after all we can do. Please mark that. When the scriptures say that it is by grace and grace alone that man can be saved and not of his works or any of his efforts, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will tell you that yes, we are saved by grace after all we can do. The problem with most of these cultic groups is not that they deny Jesus. No. In fact, in most cases, they will tell you that Jesus is essential. Jesus has provided the atonement for our salvation. But then they will quickly say, Jesus is not sufficient. So Jesus is essential. We all need him in order for us to get saved. But Jesus is not enough or is not sufficient. And therefore we need to add something on top of who Jesus is and what he has done. And in this case, we need to add the commandments. We need to add good moral behavior and living. Like in Seventh-day Adventism, you must add the observance of the Sabbath. You must perfectly obey the Ten Commandments, without which you will really not go to heaven. In Mormonism, you must not only believe Jesus, who has provided an example that you can be worthy before God, but you must also fulfill the commandments. When it comes to the understanding of sin, Latter-day Saints will tell you that the sin that Adam committed was really not as bad as we take it to be. That it was a necessary part of our eternal destiny. This is how they reason it. If Adam didn't sin, then, then when we would come to earth later, we would find a perfect world and be unable to prove ourselves to God. There would be no basis for us to be tested. Remember, according to their theology, we are here on earth so that we can be tested to see if we are worthy to stand before God. And the reason that Adam needed to sin so that we can fight against sin and prove ourselves worthy. According to them, Adam's sin brought physical death, which Jesus' atonement covers. Everybody, no matter where they will spend eternity, will be resurrected because Jesus conquered the death for us. So when Jesus died, he was not really fully and finally paying for our sins. He was only conquering death for us and giving us an opportunity to obey the commandments and prove ourselves worthy before God. According to them, Adam's sin did not produce a sinful nature in his descendants. If we had a sinful nature, then it would, not be, unfair, it would be unfair to test our worthiness. Instead, we are born without a propensity to sin. So, Latter-day Saints, in their proselytization efforts, would like to convince they would be followers that you don't need to worry so much about original sin. Because really, what Adam did, number one, was necessary. Number two, it does not get transferred to anybody. Adam, as our representative, has not really transmitted that corrupted sinful nature to each one of us. In other words, we are born neutral, we are born perfect, Jesus has covered our, our, our nature by uh, his death, and now we must follow him as our example as we keep the commandments. In other words, they are still insisting that you can find salvation by your personal human effort. Is that the evidence of scripture? No. Do we read anywhere in the Bible where somebody can do anything in order to make themselves likable or acceptable before God? No. And that's why we are saying that only a 
profound grasp of our sinfulness before God can lead us to a true attitude before God, an attitude of gratitude, an attitude characterized by true piety, which according to Calvin has three parts. Number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. But when you understand the extent of our sin, the intent of our sins, the consequences of the corrupted and perverted nature at work in us. When do you understand those things? Not only do you cry out and say, Woe unto me, I am undone. But your father said, I deserve to die. I deserve to die. I am not worthy of anything good. I am not worthy of God's love. I am not worthy of God's grace. And you see, brothers, that is what the Apostle Paul captured in Ephesians chapter 2. When he says that we were all dead in our trespasses apart from God's mercy. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Mark that, dead, not weak, not sick, not drowning, not mistaken, but really dead. And dead people don't get saved. Dead people don't confess Christ. Dead people don't do anything good. Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature, mark that, by nature deserving of wrath. That a proper understanding of sin brings us to the acknowledgement of the eternal judgment and wrath of God that we all deserve. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. God, because of his love, number one, number two, who is rich in mercy, and number three, made us alive. We who were dead, unable to help ourselves, have been made alive, and that is the good news of the gospel. That's why the gospel is called good news. In the gospel, dead men come alive. In the gospel, men who were originally enslaved to the dictates of the sinful nature and its cravings and desires and the consequences now can say, praise the Lord. Why? Because God, who is rich in mercy, out of the greatness of his love, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. No wonder Paul can confidently say, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And he concluded saying, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, mind you. It is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no man can boast. It is by God's grace and Him alone. God is unmerited and it deserves the favor that while we were dead, God who is rich in mercy, God who is rich in unconditional Calvary love, has made us life, has made us into a new creation. 
has made us sons and daughters of the living God, has given us the heavenly inheritance that none of us deserves. And when we understand the depth of our sinfulness, the consequences that accompany that sinfulness, then we begin to recognize the bright light of God's grace. And then for the rest of our lives, we want to live in wonder and awe. We want to ask ourselves, why would the God of this greatness and holiness and purity love a miserable sinner like me? Why? For the rest of our lives, there is only one thing that consumes our thoughts and our mind. That the good, great, glorious God could love miserable, pitiable, sinful, wretched, depraved human beings. How does that work? That's what we call the wonder of the gospel, my friends. That's what makes the gospel good news. That against the background of the darkness and the blackness and the, the, the death that comes from this sin that so much overwhelms and characterizes us, God, who is rich in mercy, has given us an opportunity. Romans 5.8 says that for God demonstrates his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, the word still being the key word there, that Christ Jesus died for us. Isn't that wonderful? To know that you and I have now become children of God, not on the basis of what we have done or what we can do, because we are not capable of doing any saving good, but rather on the basis of what God has done. And that God has not just provided an example as Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would want us to believe. But that Jesus is the final, the full, the perfect atoning sacrifice from whose perfect obedience and righteousness has come our own righteousness. That Christ Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin and mine. That God's full wrath has been poured on the sinless Son of God. That you who were a recipient of death has now become a beneficiary of eternal life. That, my friends, is the gospel. That, my friends, is the good news we are talking about. And that good news can only be appreciated when we understand the depth and darkness of sin. When we understand the corruption and the pollution that sin has brought upon the human race. And as we look at our misery and our desperate condition, crying out woe unto me, in the midst of those cries, we hear the cry of Jesus on Calvary's cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We hear Jesus saying, it is finished. The price is paid. The death is sorted. And in Matthew 11, 28, he says, come to me. Come to me. You who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel becomes an invitation, a crying call for all those who were once dead but have now been made alive in Christ Jesus. Not by any human work or effort, but by the glorious grace of God, by the unconditional love of God, who out of the richness of his mercy has made us alive in Christ Jesus, has made us recipients of this grace that brings salvation, that brings the sinful nature into bondage and releases us in the power of the Spirit of God to become the sons and the daughters that God has called us to be, men and women with hope, not just of a future year on earth, but of a great eternity that awaits all those who have received God's grace. My brothers, the doctrine of sin is not just something that we study so we can have information about where the problems of this world are coming from. 
but it is something that is foundational to the good news of the gospel. It is something that you and I must be reminded of day in and day out because as we look back to where we are coming from, we are able to appreciate the grace that has come to us in Christ Jesus. And knowing what God has done to deliver us from that darkness of sin, we are reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, where he says that he died for them all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus who died and rose again. Now, you and I, out of our understanding of sin and the grace of God that has come to us in the gospel, we no longer live for sin, we no longer obey the promptings of the sinful flesh, but we live for the honor, the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of God. Amen.